All right. We are looking at the seventh seal this morning. And in looking at the seventh seal, we are actually going to cover chapters 8 through 11. So we have an ambitious task before us this morning. We're going to cover 8 through 11, and we're going to unpack the seventh seal. We have waited through six seals to get to this one. What we will find, however, is that it is a similar subject, just from a different angle, from what we have been looking at in seals 1 through 6, and particularly the rest that took place in chapter 7. We're going to see that there's a same pattern going on here, because we want to remember how Revelation is unpacking itself. That Revelation is unpacking itself not in a chronological time span, but in a pictorial way. So Revelation places ideas on top of ideas. It's moving by ideas via pictures. So it's not moving by time through a wooden literalism. And that's what seems to stumble us many times in reading this particular book because you and I both look at it and we wonder, well, do we take this literally or do we take this pictorially or how do we do that? And that's why we're working through this book. But I think... What our first step should be in reading Revelation rightly is seeing that pictures are the vehicle in which meaning is being driven into our hearts. It is not primarily a wooden literalism that's carrying the time frame into our hearts. That's not the point of Revelation. Okay? All right, here we go. All right, the first German martyr in Hitler's Nazi Germany was a man named Paul Snyder. In World War I, he received the Iron Cross, which was awarded for his tremendous bravery in World War I. This man lived and fought for his country very bravely, so he could not be accused of not being a patriot, which eventually happens when we get close to the Third Reich. Well, in 1921, he began his theological studies, and he dug deeply into the theology of Martin Luther and John Calvin. In 1925, he was ordained for gospel ministry. Now, several years later, 1935 through 1936, during that brief winter period, maybe December, January, February, those three months, he's brought up on, three, on 12 charges of rebuke by the local Gestapo as the Nazi party starts gaining in its popularity and in its power. He was rebuked 12 times for resisting their twisted worldview. For instance, he refused to go high Hitler because he very practically said that's practicing outright idolatry. He refused and discouraged the children of his congregation from participating in the Hitler youth camps and the youth groups. You know, we have church youth groups, so they had Nazi youth groups, and he refused to let the children in his congregation participate in that stuff. Shortly after the 12 rebukes, the, gospel, the Gestapo visits increased. Pressure to stop a ministry that they had to German Jews in the area. Tremendous pressure to cease that ministry. There were threats and imprisonments continued to increase. And then after a brutal eight-week imprisonment in solitary confinement in a cell that was four feet by ten feet, he's finally released to his wife and six young children named Gretel. His wife's name was Gretel. But there was a condition to his release. He must go home, talk over this family, and finally accept an expulsion order from the Rhineland where his church was, and never to go back there again to preach or pastor. What would you do? 
That's the only WW thing I would even consider. What would you do? Gretel pleaded with him to find another pastor at elsewhere. Paul, this is how Paul responded to his wife. I mean, can you imagine? Your wife is pleading with you. Six young children. Honey, you can serve the Lord somewhere else. Please. And this is what he quoted. I don't know if I would have used this passage. Judges 5.18. Zebulun and Naphtali risked their lives to the point of death. Hearing this, Gretel hung her head in despair. With her voice quivering, she said, Paul, don't you think about the children? Don't you think about me? Paul, don't you love us? And Paul's eyes filled with tears and with powerful arms. He hugged her tightly and he said, My darling, I have never loved you or the children more Then on the night of that decision, I wept for you. With those words spoken to Gretel, they were spoken with such deep passion, such deep emotion, and such deep conviction that it moved her completely to identify herself with her husband. Her attitude and her heart changed on the spot. So much so that she had an attitude like this. What God has planned for my husband, may it be... To me also, so be it. Incidentally, and what's very striking about this story is that after Paul's death with six young children, she never remarried. She lived until December of 2002. She was 99 years old. In the words of Jonathan Edwards to his wife Sarah, it was an uncommon union. How in the world My friends, do we live a life like Paul and Greta Schneider? How do you live a life like that? Do we even want to live a life like that? I mean, many of us think, I don't want to live like that. I don't want to live a life like that. I don't want to live with this kind of persecution banging on my door. I don't want to live with this public ostracism. All of a sudden, you're a hero, and the next thing you know, you're an enemy, an unpatriotic countryman, lost and losing all respect from all the ranks of society and from everyone that really matters in, the, in your society. Shunned, ostracized, incredible slanderous insults and untruths said about you all the time. Bloodthirsty threats, fearful kidnappings. There was on more than one occasion he'd be driving down the road towards home and they would slam into him, pull him over, beat him up, threaten him, take him away for a while. His wife never knew when he'd show up. She worried all night when he didn't. Several occasions of stuff like that. Torn from your family, all that you hold dear, all that's good in this life. You're tortured and then you finally die a lonely, languishing death. I mean, who in the world wants to live a life like that? And I say to you, you're right. No one should seek to live a life of martyrdom. If you do, and this is where we need to watch it, and I was having a conversation with Jay on a very similar topic. If you do seek that, you probably have a form of 
prideful self-righteousness creeping into your being. Either that or you have this self-loathing and self-punishment that you're trying to beat yourself up with to make yourself right and acceptable in God's sight. So to seek martyrdom, to seek to live a life like that, is never to be sought by anybody. Martyrdom is a vocational calling from God, not a self-appointed decision that we make. Martyrdom is something that's brought upon us. It's not something done by us. There's a major difference here. But all of us, though we shouldn't seek martyrdom to live a life like this, all of us should want to and should seek to live a life of witness to the glory of Christ no matter what. And maybe that no matter what means martyrdom. So the question before us this morning is how in the world do you do that as a 10-year-old child? How do you live a life of witness to the glory of Christ no matter what? As a billionaire, as a blue-collar worker, as a coach, as a professor, as a mother of young children, as an 80-year-old retiree, as a soldier hunting down terrorists, how do you do that? How do you live a life of witness to the glory of Christ no matter what? Please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to look at Revelation 8. Because we're covering three chapters, we're not going to read it all. I'm going to try to hit the high points just so that you get an idea of what this passage is about. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, now we're here. We've gone through six seals. We're now here. There was silence in heaven for about a half hour. Then I saw the angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a gold censer, and he was given much incense to offer the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar, threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now let's jump over to 10. What happens in that next 6 down till chapter 10 is you get... Trumpet number one, trumpet number two, trumpet number three, four, five, six. And then we get to ten. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea, his left foot on the land, and he called out in a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Just I'm not going to get to this point, so I'm just going to say it right here. The point here being emphasized is, is that God's will is his will and what he wants to reveal, he reveals. Also, the point is, is that we're moving increasingly fast towards the seventh trumpet. No delays here. That's the point. Okay, now where were we? Which verse? Who's following me? Five. Thank you. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand in heaven. He's, he's swearing. He's taking an oath like a covenant servant. And swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea is what in it, is in it. Here's the point. That there should be no more delay. 
but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God will be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Now let's go over to 11. Verse 1, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. What's happening here? Again, I don't have time to hit all the little pictures. Don't get bogged down in all the little details. We'll hit the themes and maybe some other time dive into the little details. This 1 through 3 is going to be further unpacked in 4 through 14. You're getting a picture of God measuring, which is securing his people, but only securing his people to the extent of leaving the outer court vulnerable. And that, of course, we'll see here in a minute, won't we? All right. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh Lord, we thank you for this word, and again, we thank you for the book of Revelation, that it is packed with pictures and it's packed with power. And particularly, Lord, the reality of how we live for the glory of Jesus, no matter what. Oh Lord, we desperately need this truth and these words contained in this passage to be actualized in us even as we hear them. For we confess we can't come to this passage and make it true of our life by ourselves. We can't will it to be true. We can't suck it up and make it true. We can't try harder. We desperately need your Spirit to do the work. And thank you for the preached Word which does that. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I need to get a little drink here. All right, we're going to tackle chapters 8 through 11. 8 through 11 is the same subject in Revelation 6 and 7. So, 8 through 11 is dealing with the same subject of chapters 6 and 7. It's just going to come at it from a different angle. So, you've got the same diamond, but you're just going to turn it a little bit and get a different angle. Same subject, different angle. Again, this book is not moving in chronological order. That, for many of us, will help us read this Bible rightly for the first time if you get the chronological timeline out of your arsenal of interpretive tools when you come to Revelation. Okay? Think of ideas, commentary, pictures, ideas through pictures, and you're, you're on your way. Now, we're going to see the structure here. We have the seventh seal being opened in chapter 8, and it unleashes seven trumpets. Now, the first six trumpets are un are limited providential judgments, aren't they? And this should sound familiar. See, same subject, different angle. Remember the first four seals were limited providential judgments. Except the different angle here is the first four seals focused on the what? The riders. The six trumpets focus on the calamity that the riders bring. Okay? But both of them are talking about limited providential judgments. So this is a severe mercy in action for the nations, calls to repentance. 
Right? That's what's taking place here. All right? So the subject is still the tribulation. The time between the first coming and the second coming is being discussed in chapters 8 through 11. That's what's happening here. And we're looking at the reality of what it looks like for God's people to live between the time when Christ accomplished his work for us and when he finally comes for us in the new heavens and the new earth. And we live in this time of tribulation and humiliation, following the pattern of the gospel, remember. Jesus humbled himself, left heaven, lived a life of humiliation and suffering, ultimately epitomized at the cross, and then was raised and ascended to glory on high. And that's the church. The church is following. We, we come to Christ because he's exalted. The work's been done. But we live lives of sanctification. We live lives of tribulation. We are exposed and we're still here with what we're going to see are the earth dwellers and the heaven dwellers still live side by side between the first coming and the second coming until Christ comes back. All right, it's an age of tribulation. Now, just like previously, after the sixth seal, what happened? Well, after the sixth seal, that was in chapter 6, we had chapter 7. We don't get to the seventh seal till chapter 8, so there was this great intermission, right? This interlude, this rest or stop in the action because something else had to be dealt with. Another idea had to be dealt with, right? Well, same thing we have here. We have six trumpets go forward, and then all of a sudden at chapter 10 through 11 to 14... We have another intermission, another divine interlude, because something else needs to be addressed. Now, notice that the seventh trumpet, if you go to chapter 11, look at chapter 11. The seventh trumpet is in verse 15. Notice that's it. That's the end game. That is when the kingdom of God comes finally and fully. New heavens and new earth, it's all done. So we're moving towards the seventh trumpet. That's why the, the writer was saying, or that angel, that massive glorified angel was saying, no more delays, let's get to the trumpet now. Okay? But here we are with this interlude. And what happens in the interlude is the same thing that happened in the first interlude. What happens to you and me? What happens to the church during the first coming and the second coming? What happens to us in the great tribulation? And that's the question and then the answer that chapter 10 through 11 through 14 looks at, but it looks at it from a different angle. Last time we said what happens to me in the tribulation and we looked at the issue of being sealed, right? God's prized possession and then sealed for ultra happiness, right? Now we're looking at how do you live a life to the glory of Christ no matter what? That's the angle that it's taking now. And that's what we're going to do. So first we're going to look at the no matter what, then we're going to look at the how-to. Okay, so let's chomp through the no matter what here. The no matter what, here it is. Number one, you will face crushing calamity. You will face crushing calamity. The Lamb opens the seventh seal in chapter 8. Notice what happens. Silence. 30 minutes of silence in heaven. Can you imagine such a thing?
Can you imagine the four heavenly creatures who do not cease to say, as the text says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And the text says they ceaselessly say that. And so you come to the four creatures and when this seventh seal is open, they stop in their tracks. Silence. Now we move to the 24 elders. Remember what the 24 elders are doing? They're going around and they ceaselessly give worth and honor and glory to the one who deserves all honor and all power and all dominion and all strength. And they're silent. And then you go to the new songs of praise and salvation that, that circle out of the throne in ever-expanding circles of worship as more and more till all of creation is swept up in the praise of this great high king who now, whose son, goes and takes the, the scroll from the right hand of the Father, breaks open the seals, and songs of joy and exaltation and praise and thanksgiving break out all over creation. And they're silent. And then you come to the martyrs that suffer and the suffering saints in seal five who day after day and time after time do what's called the lament. And they're asking God to come in in his final justice and vindicate God's people. And they stop their laments and they're silent. The Chronicles of Narnia has many favorite scenes for many people, right? In our house... My favorite scene is not Lucy and the Fawn, Mr. Tuttle. That would be my daughter, Belle. It was not Peter charging after the white witch after Edmund was struck down. That would be my oldest. It was not when Peter slammed his sword into the ice and commanded his sisters, hang on to me, as a wall of water went over them. That would be Knox. And it was not every scene in the movie, because that would be my daughter, Bryn. <laughs> it was when two great armies met on an open field, right? Aslan and Peter's army. And then the White Witch's army. And as far as the eye could see, on the horizon, their lines stretched deep, massively deep in their ranks. And then they charged each other. Remember that? And do you remember the unearthly noise that came with that? The shrieks and the battle cries and the yells. This deafening noise and the fact of weapons being taken out and slamming against each other. The thunder of hoofbeats coming towards. And you knew and you waited and you just watched the lines coming together. The space between them vanishing as fast as the horses could carry them. And then right before they hit, what happened? Silence. And it was an unnerving silence. It was the kind that grabbed you by the throat. Fearsome, vicious, deadly anticipating, ferocious, intense silence. Do you know why there's silence in heaven? When the seventh seal is broke? It's an unearthly silence. It's the silence of when a high king in his holiness closes in to clash with unholiness. And his line is moving. And he's just about to hit with the six trumpets. And all of heaven 
is silent. It's fierce. It's intense. It's unsettling because the king has left his throne and he's going to clash with unholiness. That's the picture here, my friends. It's an intense picture. The seven trumpets are blown and their providential judgments against all earth dwellers. That's the language of Revelation. So what's happening here, the term earth dweller actually starts in verse 13. If you just look at it, 8.13. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly over the head. Woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. There's a contrast in the book of Revelation between earth dwellers and heaven dwellers. That's a contrast the text makes. It's not a contrast that you and I make. It's a contrast that God can make from heaven. We get a picture of what they're like. But again, there's always, there's always the thief on the cross that can repent at the last hour and enter into gates of splendor. But when we look at the earth dwellers, what we have is the heaven dwellers are God's sealed people. The earth dwellers are the beast's sealed people. You'll get that in chapter 13. Again, we're using pictorial language. So one set of people, God seals. And then there's another set of people that the beast seals. And if there's a perfect number, a whole number written on the heads of the sealed to show God's ownership, there would obviously be an imperfect number, an always falling short number, a number that never reaches completion and fulfillment. And that would be a number that if you did it three times shows that it's imperfection, 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 six, six, six. Right? Now, the ones that are sealed by the beast are those that harden their heart towards God and God's people. These are the folks that would persecute the church. These are the folks that despise the grace of God. These will be people and nations that say no to God's grace. That when they come to the cross, they stumble over it. The sealed stand on the cross. The sealed treasure and delight in a slaughtered lamb that leads to their salvation. And the earth dwellers look at a slaughtered lamb and they say, that's foolish. That's just not right. And the sealed or the heaven dwellers say, no, that's, that's the wisdom of God. Right? And so there's a contrast going back and forth here. The ones that are on the earth, earth dwellers are those that end up aligning themselves with the beast rather than God and his son. That's the bottom line. That's why they're called followers of the beast. Now, how many of you think that the world could be divided into two groups like that? And how many of you think that you could call someone who doesn't name Christ that? I mean, that's so un-PC, it's not even funny. Right? But this is what God says. And he says it because the seventh trumpet hasn't sounded yet, even though six go. And even though the high king in his holiness starts running and charges his battle line to clash into unholiness, it's still limited. It's still a severe mercy. It's still a call to repent. The seventh trumpet doesn't sound. So all earth dwellers, which you and I were, and maybe some of us here still are, it's a trumpet blast to repent. It's meant to be loud to wake us up. And so that's what we get here. The seven trumpets target earth dwellers and they foretaste and forecast final judgment. Remember, just like the four seals, these are final judgments coming. 
The angel's standing and taking an oath, and he's saying, it's coming, the seventh trumpet's coming. And this final judgment is coming in, now in history, as a foretaste of what it will be like in these first six trumpets. And it's a forecast because these four push you forward to know that the seventh trumpet's coming. It's coming, and there's not a long delay. Repent. And so the picture we should get here is the picture of the trumpets of Israel marching around the city of Jericho how many times? Seven. Isn't that interesting? Seven times they're marching around Jericho. Why? Because they're sounding out the eventual doom of the city of man. And what we have in these trumpets is the trumpets are marching around the city of man and there are going to be seven trumpets and on the seventh trumpet it's over. And the city of man falls and Jericho falls. That's the picture you should be getting in your minds here. So calamity hits. Trumpet number one, dry land. Trumpet number two, the sea. Trumpet number three, fresh water. Trumpet number four, the sky. In other words, all the areas of creation are touched by the severe mercy of God and providential judgments. And so what that means is you and I will face calamity, crushing calamity, because we will be affected by these providential judgments. We're included in them. Creation, all of creation's targeted. You and I will experience them. So we will experience tribulation. We will experience suffering. And yes, we should experience repentance for all of our unholiness and remaining sin that lives in us. These should be wake-up calls for all of us. So it's not just the unbeliever that needs to repent in these kind of things, that all believers in the church need to continue to repent because the the life in tribulation is a life of repentance, right? Now, the last three, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on because you can get so bogged down in all the issues, but the last three trumpets are specifically directed at the earth dweller. And I know you're going to have lots of questions like, trumpet number five, what in the world is that? Grasshoppers. Trumpet number six, what in the world is that? I'm going to say it and then move on. And if you have more questions, we'll talk about it. But I do not want to get bogged down in the details. Trumpet number five, the locusts are not Black Hawk helicopters. All right? Let's go to trumpet number six. No, they are... Here's the point. The trumpet number five focuses on de- demonic torment. In other words, the locusts come in and they, they're fearsome and they show that they come from the pit. They come from the dark world. These are dark, terrifying forces that are let loose. Instead of attacking uh, agriculture, they're attacking human hearts and human minds. Okay? Instead of the normal stay of a, a swarm of locusts would be a few days, here they last for five months. That's a whole season. That means it's total and it's devastation. Here's what I think is best put. What is the torture here? The torture here, according to Vern Porthris, is very well said. The self-defeating and tormenting nature of wickedness in the human heart. In other words, this general principle has multiple fulfillments. In other words, the wickedness in the human heart, the self-defeating and self-torturing, the reality of how destructive sin is to the mind and to the heart, even to the body, all the destructive effects of sin and all of its power and its punishing effects is what this is picturing. And it's picturing being galvanized by dark demonic forces. So there's a conspiracy, as Paul says, between unbelief and Satan or demonic forces. They form this 
mutual bond of self-destruction of God's image bearers. That's the point. The next point, you get to Trumpet 6. It's focusing on military judgment. Again, Poitras, nations as well as individuals who give themselves to idols or to the worship of power and conquest may find themselves overwhelmed in a military judgment brought against them. Like Hitler's Third Reich. Like ancient Babylon. Rome. Like the Soviet Union. Like Saddam Hussein. Right? The last three trumpets are directed specifically at earth dwellers. You and I, the church, do not get in the crosshairs. But the first five, first four trumpets, we will face. Okay? And obviously, trumpet seven is the final judgment. Now, don't miss how the trumpets. What they're the answer to, they're the answer to prayer. If you look at verses 3 through 5, notice what's happening. The angel comes and he's bringing this golden censer and prayers are going up before the Lord. One commentator put it this way, One of the reasons for the silence in heaven was for God to hear the prayers. I mean, the picture is incredible. The picture is all of heaven and all the beings of heaven are doing whatever they can to make sure these prayers get up and onward towards God so that God hears the prayers. So much so that there's complete silence so God could hear. Do you see the intensity and the personal passion that God has for you when you pray? It's intense. Shh! Susie's praying. That's the picture. And the angels can't wait. For God to hear the prayers. That's why the incense is going up. That's why the smoke is going up. Everything's going up so that God hears the prayers. And the six trumpets, the seven trumpets, are the answer. Okay? Now, not only will you face crushing calamity, but you might face cruel persecution. Let's go to the interlude now. The interlude has two parts to it. First part's in 10. That's John eating the scroll. We'll get to that in a minute. The second part is two witnesses. That's where we're going to be. These two witnesses are symbolizing the witnessing church. They're a picture of the witnessing church. How do I know that? Let's look at verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. I need to say this real quick again. There's so many details, not enough time. How is this the church? Number one, it's given authority. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. Where have you heard that passage? That's the same particular thing that's going on here. No, that's in verse 3. Notice the other in verse 3. It will proclaim a message. It's a message of coming judgment and a message of repentance. That's why the picture is clothed in sackcloth. That's the universal Old Testament sign for repentance. Remember Nineveh? Sackcloth, ashes, repentance when they heard the word of judgment. It's a word of judgment that this message is proclaiming, is saying, judgment's coming, final justice is coming. Therefore, repent. That's the message the church brings to the world. That's the message. What's the bit about the 1260 days? Well, that comes to three and a half years. Seven years is what? A perfect season, a perfect cycle. So, the perfect time has been shortened. It's a small amount of time before judgment comes. That's the point. Right? 
It's cut in half. The perfect period of time is cut in half, emphasizing closeness of judgment. All right, what about the two olive trees, two lampstands? Lampstands we get, right? We've already heard the church is referred to as a lampstand. The two olive trees, this is Zechariah's vision of the temple coming, and he sees two anointed ones, two olive trees. One reflects the royal part of the church. The other reflects the priestly part. The royal part will do a part of rebuilding the temple. The priestly part will serve in the temple. Again, the picture here is the prophet, priest, and king offices of the church and of the believer. That's being emphasized here. What about two? Well, we know when you're going to have a court in the Old Testament, how many witnesses did you need to have for it to be true and reliable? Two. See the pictures? Don't get hung up on other stuff. It's just the church. you got the power of the message. Well, Jeff, what about good night? They have power to shut the sky. No rain may fall. That, no, that, that sounds like some of the groups I used to read about today. You know, they're handling things and think they're not going to get bitten. Is this what you're talking about? Is this what the church is called to? No, this is the power of God to save and the power of God to punish. The power of God in the message. The message either opens heaven up for heaven dwellers or it further seals and hardens earth dwellers. Okay, so the message is a power from God, verse five, to save and punish. It might be an Elijah like power. That's what verse six is talking about. Look at verse six. They have the power to shut the sky. No rain may fall. Well, who did that? Remember Elijah standing before Ahab? No rain. Till God says so. See ya. Three years. I'll be back. Right? Then you go down to the next part of 6b, and it's another type of person, and it's a Moses-like power. It sounds like the plagues. Again, these are all Old Testament pictures, all describing the power of God. All right, let's keep moving. Now, don't miss verses 7 through 8. What happens to the church? This is the part we don't want to read. And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically, wow, Revelation even said it itself, symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. You could die for not denying the worth and work of Jesus Christ. That's the point here. And brothers and sisters, many already have. I even hesitate using this example, and I think I'm probably going to have to end on it, because it's so graphic. But it needs to be said, because I think we fall asleep in our Disneyland Christianity, and we don't realize that we live in the most martyred century in the history of the world. Do you believe that? The statistics show that 150,000 believers are martyred every year and that this is the bloodiest century on record for Christian martyrs. On September 28, 1997, Craig Barnes, pastor of National Presbyterian Church, Washington, D.C. This is a gutsy move. Said one evening, quote, the soldiers talked about a girl they had raped many times in the course of the afternoon. Through it all, this girl sang hymns, strange evangelical songs. And she kept on singing even after they shot her in the chest. She lay on the ground with the blood flowing from her chest, but she kept on singing. 
a bit weaker than before, but still singing. Then the soldiers grew tired of this and shot her again, but still she sang. And then the soldiers became afraid. Darn right. Terrified of the girl, they fell upon her with machetes, and at last the singing stopped. He went on to say, for the last 2,000 years, someone has always been trying to stop the singing of Christ's followers. The report I just read sounds like the accounts of early church persecution I studied in history books, but this report comes from the New Yorker magazine. When? December 6, 1993. So how do you live? How do you live for the glory of Christ no matter what, even if it means that? The first answer comes with what God made John do with the scroll. What did, John, what did God make John do with the scroll in chapter 10? Eat it. <laughs> Remember what the scroll contains? It contains the kingdom of God, the message of the kingdom of God, and what God is saying, John, eat my words. Taste my word so that it is sweet to you. And taste my word so that it is bitter sweet to you. In other words, the first application for all of us is we need to internalize the word of God. We need to breathe in God's word as if it's the very breath of God himself. We need to see God's word that we don't live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And that we would rather say no to bread to say yes to the bread of life if it came down to it. That we would rather say no to this life, but yes to the bread of life that lasts forever. The point is, is that we've got to take in God's Word internally. And this means God's Word has got to get in you. And how does God's Word get in you? How does it do that? Well, as I was thinking last night, how to best help you think of something, I thought, Aslan. All right, here we go. Admit your lack of internalization, A. Seek the Holy Spirit's help by reading God's Word. Locate Jesus in the center of God's Word. Act. Trust God's presence and power to go with you. And the last one, end. Number your days. We don't have time to go through all those. I'll probably save it until next week. But how do we? How do we live to the glory of God no matter what. First is we've got to internalize God's Word. The second thing we'll look at next week is we've got to internalize a rugged realism. I mean, you and I need to take into our soul the fact that it is a ruggedness and we need to be very real about it in this world's realm. That the world isn't going to hold back any punches on you. In other words, don't go to the UN and don't go screaming to a lawyer to try to make it right because it's not going to happen. Okay? The second thing, or the third thing, is we need to internalize a rich faith in a resurrection. And we'll look at this stuff next week. Let's end on this. This Paul Schneider, on October 5th, 1937, he returned to his church. Remember, he was told not to. And he returned to his church in the Rhineland against the orders of the Scapo. He preached on Psalm 145, verses 15 through 21. This very act of preaching led to everything in life that he holds dear being lost. Everything. 
When the police came to get him that night, Gretel had just enough time, the text says. The historical account says she quickly rushed and grabbed a pocket Bible, just had enough time to cram it into his jacket pocket before they ripped him away. And while they're ripping him away, he's straining back at her and he says this to her. He says, tell the church that I am and shall ever remain their pastor. He ended up in Buckingham concentration camp. He worked 16-hour shifts in the camp. I had a 16-hour day on Wednesday, and I thought, I'm exhausted. And I started thinking of that guy. Every day, 16 hours in a concentration camp. He fasted every Friday still and gave his meager food rations to those who needed it. On Hitler's 49th birthday, to honor him, the guards lined up all the prisoners and told them to bow down, take off their hats, and bow down to the German swastika flag. The only man standing was Paul Snyder, with his hat on. And for that, he resulted in 25 blows from an oxide whip. His bloody body was put in a solitary confinement, and he was left there for 15 months in a four-by-ten-foot cell. There he turned into a broken skeleton. There his clothes turned to rags, and there his body crawled with vermin. One morning through the bars, he proclaimed Christ to the other prisoners lining up for roll call. Can you imagine this guy? The other guys are lining up for roll call. He's through, his, through the bars. He's proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For that, he received 24, 25 more whips from an oxide whip. On January... 1939, two prisoners tried to escape and they were hung before all the prisoners and he yelled through the bars, still in his solitary confinement, quote, in the name of Jesus Christ, I witness against these murders of these prisoners. For that, he received another 25 lashes. One guard later asked him, if we let you go, Paul, what would you do? Paul said, I'd go to the nearest town on the nearest corner and it'd become my pulpit and I'd rail against your crimes and your brutality. And for that, they hung him up by his wrists so that his feet couldn't touch the ground and left him there for hours. Paul kept up his brief messages through his cell bars. This only increased his tor tortures. One man, here's one of his messages on Easter, becomes a believer and he says this, In my estimation, he was the only man in Germany who, overcoming all human fear, so consciously took on himself the cross of Christ even to death. So why did he keep on preaching? I mean, why did this man keep on preaching? To his own, his own words to a friend, he said, somebody has to preach God's word in this hell. When Dietrich Bonhoeffer got news of his death, on July 18, 1939, he was starved, beaten, bleeding. He was injected with a massive overdose of poison. So at age 41, he's dead. At age 35, Gretel's a widow. Six young children. Dietrich Bonhoeffer heards the news. He's in London. Remember, he escaped Germany. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer ends up going back to Germany and becoming a martyr himself. But when he heard this news, he was at his sister's house. He gathered all the nieces and nephews of his sister around. And this is what he said to them. Listen, children. You must never forget the name of Pastor Paul Schneider. He is our first martyr. 
So brothers and sisters, how do you live a life of witness to the glory of Christ no matter what? You've got to internalize God's Word. You've got to eat God's Word. It can't stay on the outside anymore. It's got to get in on the inside. It has to be the stuff that feeds your soul. And you've got to internalize a rugged realism about this world and internalize a rich faith in the resurrection. All things we'll look at in more detail next week. But I think what should happen now is I hope this week you begin to hunger to live a life like that. To be a woman like that. To be a man like that. And it only can happen by the grace of God. Amen.